Developmental language disorder. One in 14. DLD. The DLD project. The TOEFL DLD podcast. Brought to you by the DLD project. Hi everyone, Sean here from the DLD project. Does speaking more than one language cause DLD? This is a question we often hear from families who speak two or more languages at home. The short answer is no. In fact, being multilingual may actually be beneficial. In this episode of the Talking DLD podcast, Emily Hunt, speech pathologist and PhD candidate at Edith Cowan University, will talk to us about her work investigating the diagnosis of children with DLD who speak two or more languages. So welcome to the Talking DLD podcast, Emily. I'm going to start by asking the first question, which is, can you tell us about your connection to DLD as a way of introducing yourself to our audience? Sure, and thanks for having me. Um, I'm a speech pathologist. I've been a speech pathologist for about 20 years, and I'm Mm -hmm. currently a PhD student at Edith Cowan University in WA, and I'm looking at diagnosis of DLD in children that speak more than one language. And I'm also very fortunate to be a member of the Multicultural and Multilingual Affairs Committee of the, it's a long uh, title, the International Association of Communication Sciences and Disorders. And we've worked together and recently um, produced a series of documents that were answers to frequently asked questions about speech pathology services for multilingual children. So I think I've seen reference to those documents on mm. some different websites. So that they're live now, aren't they? Absolutely, yeah. So I think what we might do for um, everybody listening in for the podcast is we might actually link those in our resources yeah. so that they can click on. Um, I'm assuming we'll talk about those later, possibly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So I won't jump straight into it. Um, so thank you so much for joining us. I'm really excited because, um, as we were saying off air before we um, started the podcast, I think that given the fact that Australia is such a multicultural nation that we could have very easily let, you know, multicultural uh, and multilingual conversations sort of slip down the list a little bit. But I think that given the focus of uh, really being that multicultural nation, talking about multilingual children with DLD is really important because so many children will come from different cultural backgrounds and will speak different languages. And as I say to everyone, I'm hopelessly monolingual, um, cannot speak... (laughs) I can't, I cannot speak a, a wisp of any other language. So I think it's really important for us um, and particularly for me in my clinical practice and work with families to know more about um, how to support those needs. So I'm really excited. Tell me, so getting into this conversation around DLD and multilingualism, do children who speak two or more languages have DLD? Or what about if a child is fluently speaking their home language but finds it difficult to learn a second language, do they have DLD? Uh, Well, firstly, at least half of the world's population is multilingual and half of the population doesn't have DLD. So being multilingual is actually normal um, and it doesn't cause a language disorder or a language impairment. And we know that DLD is a neurobiological impairment and so it makes sense, though, that some of those multilingual children will have DLD. But... Um, The research shows that speaking more than one language doesn't make it harder for a child with DLD to learn language, especially when you compare them to children that speak only one language. And we also know that multilingual children with DLD don't have a more severe form of DLD than those children that are monolingual. So the definition of DLD is that the children have an unexplained difficulty in learning language. So if the child's got appropriate 
language skills in their home language, then it's unlikely that they've got DLD. It's just more likely that they need some more additional uh, support or increased quality or quantity of exposure to learn the second language. And for us as speech pathologists to be aware that's a very long process to develop academic language um, in a second language. So it can take, you know, five or seven years or longer. Wow. So in terms of least thinking about the difference between maybe picking up English as a conversational language versus if maybe you're a speech pathologist or somebody working in a school, you'd expect that that academic language we need to use to access the curriculum would take a lot longer than perhaps some of those conversation level skills. Is that what That's you're suggesting? Right. Yeah, yeah, and being more aware of, um, I think as speech pathologists, we're quite good at knowing what our norms are and what we expect for children's mm -hmm. language development, but we're not necessarily as well informed about uh, children who come from more diverse language backgrounds or children mm -hmm. who are new to English and what the mm -hmm. developmental stages um, for learning English are for those children. So um, children could get misclassified as having a language disorder when it's actually just typical language development for second language learning. Do you think that that's because, and I'm going off script here, Emily, but you know, is that because um, there isn't a lot of research out there about the language development milestones of multilingual children, or is it that there isn't a lot of transference into the knowledge of speech pathologists working with these children, or maybe a bit of both? Well, I think that certainly most speech pathologists are monolingual, so their expectations mm -hmm. are that it will be like it was for mm -hmm. their experience growing up. So that is a big yep. thing to think about. There is a lot of research in the different milestones, but it's incredibly complex. There's a variety of factors that impact mm -hmm. and have differential um, impact upon language milestones. So it's not just the amount of exposure, it's the quality of exposure, it's the age of exposure. Um, it can depend on um, how close the two languages are uh, mm -hmm. linguistically. It can depend on how similar the cultural expectations are between those two languages. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of factors and the multitude of those factors make it very difficult to say, well, this is the right number or, you know, this right. is what we expect. So it's about being aware that there are differences and as speech pathologists being educated about what are the impact of those differences. Absolutely. I think that what you what I'm taking away is it's a really complex and multifaceted. <laughs> <laughs> Hence why you're doing some, some work in this yes. space. Um, <laughs> But trying to pull what you've together, uh, together what you've just said is that if a child is presenting with difficulties in both languages, mm. it's likely that they could have a developmental language disorder if it's, there's no known cause. But if it's just learning a new language and they're comfortable in using their home language, then therefore it would be difficulties learning that as a second language learner. I think that's the difference yeah. as well in that... Uh, with a family from a multilingual, a multilingual child, you need to actually spend a lot of time finding out about home language use, whereas we don't necessarily mm -hmm. investigate that in a lot of detail for monolingual children because we have assumptions about what that looks like. Yeah. Um, so being the actual role of the parent becomes much, much more important in the diagnosis process. So we've already talked about speech pathologists and the fact that they do play this really important role in assessing speech and language skills. Um, but as you've already said, a lot of speech pathologists are often monolingual, um, so they may not speak the same language as the child that they're working with. So how should a speech pathologist go about assessing DLD or potentially DLD in multilingual children? What sort of factors should they be thinking about? Um, so we know that gold standard assessment for diagnosis of DLD in every children should use information from multiple sources. So you're asking for parent information, you're collating standardised assessments, you're using clinical assessments and um, teacher feedback about educational impact. 
but we need to make sure that that model is really um, especially used with multilingual children. So it's important that we do use multiple sources because some of the, those information sources aren't designed for use with multilingual children. So they can give us inaccurate results, for example, standardised assessments. And I like the phrase that was used um, recently in an article, which is called converging evidence. So recognising that we need to create, you know, collect a variety of information and then find out what story that information is telling to evaluate the child's strengths and weaknesses. Um, as I said earlier, parent information is super important. So obviously you're going to ask the usual case history questions about, you know, developmental norms and that kind of thing. But also asking about their viewpoints about their child's skills in relation to the community that they come from. So we might not have, as we said before, a lot of norms that tell us, you know, so a child who is X years of age, who has speak, been speaking this particular language for this many years and has once a week playgroup in this language should be able to do this. We don't have those kinds of norms. But the parents are actually um, the experts. And we can ask parents if the language they're seeing in their child is similar or is it different to other children in their community with similar language experience and their siblings. Is this different to what you're expecting or is this similar to the other kids who, you know, have had the same upbringing and the same linguistic background? So instead of relying on like a number from a test, we're actually asking for an expert judgment from the parent. And I think that that's so important because as a monolingual speech pathologist, I'm not an expert in the language norms for, um, you know, that family's communication. Um, the other thing that we also recommend that you need to gather some information is about the child's language experience. So how many languages that are spoken by the people that care for the child and how much time that they spend in those environments and the amount of talking that the child does in different languages as well. And whether that has changed over time, because we know that that's really a static thing. It doesn't stay the same forever. And you want to know this information because the amount and type of language exposure matters. So as a speech pathologist, obviously you need to modify your expectations for what is typical language development based on how much actual exposure they've had to the language that you're trying to assess. Um, Standardised testing, we use a lot in speech pathology, but you know, you need to be very aware of the limitations of the test in relation to the child's language and cultural background. So unless the test has been normed on children from a similar cultural and linguistic background, a low score doesn't necessarily mean that a child has a language disorder. It might just mean they haven't had exposure, enough exposure to the language that you're trying to test. Or also that the child doesn't have um, like a cultural experience of this kind of testing dynamic. So they might perform poorly because they actually haven't had experience of, you know, the grown up asks the questions and the child responds with the answers. I've worked in a lot of um, quite multilingual uh, kindergarten and pre-primary. So mm -hmm. it's interesting to see how like a school schema and a testing schema is very differently experienced by lots of different children. Um, and I think the other thing that speech pathologists need to be aware of as well is actually to take it a step further and actually do some investigation about, so what do we need to know about the child's culture and the language? You know, to know some basic information, and you can get this from Wikipedia, it's not hard to find. Um, <laughs> like, the, what's the clause structure of that language or what word order or how do they mark cases or what's the morphology like or phonetics or social cues and pragmatics? And that helps you make a bit of a difference between language errors that are maybe suggestive of DLD and language errors that are probably more likely to due to a, like a cross-linguistic transfer from the child's other language, which they're explainable and actually show that the child actually has metalinguistic ability and language learning ability. They're just applying a rule from another language. Yeah, they're pulling in what they already know. Yeah, yeah, and that's a great 
you know, that's a sign that they have got some skills and they're transferring them, you know, and we sometimes interpret that as a, a deficit Era. or a disorder. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's a lot of research, particularly in Europe, about non-word repetition, um, mm -hmm. trying to find a language neutral way of testing language. And then, then of course, dynamic assessment is the one that I'm most interested in because that's yes. what I do my research on. And that's more about investigating like learning potential or stimulability and using that as an information source for making a diagnosis as well. Mm, fabulous. So there's lots of uh, information out there for speech pathologists, but I think that there's also um, for our parent listeners, because um, having launched now and seeing who is uh, joining in and following us on social media, I'm really impressed by the number of people from professional but also from family backgrounds who are joining in uh, and you really have kind of highlighted that there's an important role to play as a parent isn't there in the assessment process I mean you you you're, I think your exact words were that they're an expert yeah, um, yeah. and I completely agree that you know parents are the expert in their own child it's us as um, speech pathologists or whatever allied health professional that they might be working with to help pull together uh, that information. Well, I think the word you were was a convergence, or there yeah, was a, I like that converging yeah. evidence. Yeah, there's an article yeah. which I'll give you to link, which um, talks about that. that a lot. That yeah. you know, it's not just get a score, get a diagnosis. It's actually yes. you've got to look at more than one thing, and that you know, we always say that the parents are the experts in the child, but actually, the mm. parent is also your cultural and linguistic expert to the child's language experience and you know what what the structure of their language is like. So you can ask them, is that something you would say, or does that sound unusual to you? Yeah. And I think that um, in my own experience, I'm just, I'm, as you're talking, reflecting on uh, families and kids that I've worked with, that there's definitely been times where, you know, the parents will know, particularly if they've got other children, or maybe um, in the instances of quite large families, lots of cousins and things mm. like that, that there are other language users in their immediate vicinity, they can pull in this information on, and they're making expert snap judgments, which are actually not um, they're based on their own experiences, but also quite valid in that decision-making process. Um, I, I remember working with an interpreter once uh, who had had much older children and then saying to the interpreter and, and the parent, you know, is this what you would expect? And both of them looked at each other and went, no, this isn't what we would expect. <laughs> this isn't what we'd expect. But they unanimously verified together that no, that what the child was doing was not what they would expect in their language and they also had children that had been exposed to English as a second language so it wasn't just the they were monolingual speakers of their home language sure, they had sure. this um, complex overlay between both languages um, and as a language second language learner in Australia there's some really um, interesting experiences and information that you can acquire through speaking to the families yeah um, I think it's important as well that you know, you need to acknowledge your own upbringing and your own education as well. Yes. So, you know, as a monolingual speaker in Australia, my expectations of what a child's testing behaviour looks like or what I would expect them to say mm -hmm. is informed by my culture. And just because mm -hmm. a child doesn't necessarily do what I'm expecting doesn't mean that's a sign of a disorder. I need to actually, you know, check what that means, you know, culturally yes. for that child. You know, we've all had situations where we've sat down and tried to assess a child and they haven't said a word to us. And then you reflect back and go, oh, maybe, maybe. And, you, you know, you speak mm. some more time with the teachers who um, know the children quite well or, yep. you know, with the family. They say, well, no, no, our children are taught not to answer back to adults. Like, we, don't, we don't do that. Yes. So, of course, you're not going to get any words out of them. And you look back and go, <laughs> well, OK, that makes more sense then. And yes. yeah, so you get more information from the parents. And I think that's probably what I've learned is that I need to be much more... Uh, assertive about trying to get access to parents and certainly mm -hmm. being 
you know, having a lot of experience of working in schools, sometimes that's exceptionally difficult because, you know, okay. you drop in service and it's hard to get that contact, but you need to make a real effort to get some information about the child's family language and experience. Mm. So you're saying speech pathologists, the families are valuable, but also to the families listening in the speech, you know, the speech pathologist is really going to value your input. So Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. That's great. Perfect. Now you've already mentioned the topic of dynamic assessment, um, which you knew I was going to bring up um, because it obviously relates to your PhD research. For our listeners, could you tell us about the role of dynamic assessment and maybe even share a little bit about your own research about dynamic assessment? Well, I could talk about dynamic assessment all day. Um, <laughs> I thought you could. <laughs> which I won't. Um, look, I came to it as a research topic. I think as a clinician, I probably do did dynamic assessment, but I didn't necessarily know or maybe, you know, conceptualise that what I was doing was dynamic assessment in inverted mm-hmm. commas. So, for example, one of the kindies that we used to work in or pre-primaries, they had like 20 kids and 12 different languages and we sat down to do like phonological awareness screening tests and of course you know we didn't do very well mixed Um, results i bet yeah so we go well (laughs) that's not very informative actually so we do a bit of time and we sit and we play and try and teach the kids what we're trying to test them on and then you know do the testing and so we would get better information that way and we were talking about that a lot and the other thing that we would do is you know we had a bit of a contract to do some screening and some intervention and to please make referrals. So we would do that, but um, we wouldn't do referrals right at the beginning. So what we would do is we would go in and we would work in small groups with the kids and look at, you know, over a series of six weeks, who made lots of progress in that six weeks in their language Mm -hmm. and who was not making a lot of progress and using that as information to inform the diagnosis. So we've been measuring what they're learning week to week. And then, you know, after a term or so, we'd be much more comfortable in making a referral to speech pathology programs because we felt we had a better idea actually about their ability because we're looking at their stimulability and their ability to learn language. So the kids that are responding very quickly to the input, the structured input we were giving them, we probably didn't refer. Whereas mm-hmm. the kids that were not making big gains were more likely to be concerned about Um, But of course, at the same time, we're up against deadlines and knowing that an early referral gets you more treatment in the treatment pipeline, there was a fine balancing act between an early but inaccurate referral and a later but more accurate referral. And so that's where my interest in dynamic assessment increased and I read a lot and I did some more reading and reading and reading and reading and then came up with my research project from there. So what I'm looking at is um, I'm finding out the current ways that DLD is diagnosed in multilingual children by um, interviewing speech pathologists. And then I'm trialling a dynamic assessment with some multilingual and monolingual children with diagnosed DLD and then following them up after two years to determine um, how much their responsivity to the dynamic assessment predicted their later language growth. Mm, Fascinating. And Mm. so looking at children who have already been diagnosed, you're obviously going to you know, you're not looking at re-diagnosing, you're looking at that confirming, yes, we've got those difficulties, but then looking at drawing comparisons between both the um, monolingual and the multilingual children with DLD. I think that's a really interesting, you know, approach to researching that specific topic, isn't it? We, you know, we hear anecdotally that there are some children maybe who are diagnosed with multilingual children, sorry, who are yes. diagnosed with language disorder that maybe it turns out that maybe they didn't have language disorder after all, and maybe they just didn't have a lot of language experience. And yes. so 
what we're expecting to see is that those children will do quite well. Well, we're hoping, we're wondering what yes. this is our research question is. It does high levels of responsivity in that dynamic assessment at an early age predict actually yeah. much stronger language growth two years later. Really interesting. And giving that time between those two time points will give you some yeah. um, interesting time to see how they respond as well. So, yeah, yeah. yeah so, fascinating. Yeah. Longitudinal studies. Woohoo. <laughs> yeah, good on you. That's a, um, that's a commitment to uh, plan out your uh, PhD under around that uh, longitudinal study. So, well done, especially yeah. around something that. Part-time PhD, so it's going to take a while, but, but it allows me to follow multiple cohorts of kids up after two years. So. But it sounds like you've been able to bring in that clinical background. I think that's what people are looking for in there, you know, is how, how do we bring together our clinical and research size? I think it sounds like a perfect study that does that. You know, we can look at something that is going to be able to be applied. I, I'm really looking forward to hearing the results. That sounds oh, great. So am I. <laughs> <laughs> It's a part of the journey. <laughs> it's all part of the journey, yeah. So we've talked a little bit about um, working with multilingual children and you've already touched on the fact that there is quite a bit of misinformation out there around multilingual children. What are some of the biggest myths that you hear either in the speech pathology or the general, commu uh, the general community? Uh, the first big myth that seems to be going around is that restricting a multilingual child to just one language will result in better language growth. And mm -hmm. we actually know that's not true. So you still hear Absolutely. anecdotally of medical professionals and speech pathologists who say, oh, maybe you should just concentrate on the school language because, you know, that's going to be really important. And it is going to be important. But what's also really important is, you know, connection to culture and connection to, mm -hmm. um, you know, family. So your home language is the language of your grandparents and your family stories and your lullabies and your pet names and your family jokes and asking a multicultural, a multilingual family to become monolingual, you're asking them to cut out all of that experience. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and monolingual people generally think that the best, because that's their personal experience, you know, yes. that the best way to learn is that you should just concentrate on one language and do your best. But we know that that doesn't necessarily translate and that doesn't work. And actually there's no, as we said before, you know, there's no double disadvantage that comes from being multilingual and having DLD. It doesn't make it worse. No, absolutely. Yeah. I'm frequently surprised that that is still being discussed. I, I feel like it was a given many years ago that we don't make that recommendation, but yeah, we still, but you still see it coming up on Twitter. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I went to the doctor's or I went to the nurse or I went to the speech pathologist today and they just, said, I should just, is this true? And everyone goes, oh, horrors. No, no, it's not. Yeah. Yeah. I think the other one that comes up a lot is about code switching. Um, mm. Monolingual uh, speech pathologists can get a little bit hand flappy and scared about um, code switching, that changing a word or a phrase mid sentence is a sign of a confusion or a disorder. Ah. Um, it's actually a sign of linguistic flexibility and yes. it's a typical um, communication pattern for multilingual children and adults who are typically mm -hmm. developing. Um, it just means that the person speaking has chosen the best word or phrase in their repertoire, which is wider than the monolingual repertoire, to fulfil that part of the sentence. Um, it's never just random. People you know, don't just what adjectives for nouns or verb phrases were noun phrases like the, no. um, there's, there's rules in code switching. It always complies with a grammatical rule. So mm -hmm. it's not necessarily something to be too concerned about. And I've heard examples of people saying that there's no English equivalent 
And so we'll purposely yeah. code switch because they can't think of a better or more accurate way to state it in English. Or in fact, you know, that particular word combination wouldn't make sense in English. So, you know, that would be perfectly appropriate for them to communicate in the, in the way that most makes sense to them. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we're imposing rules that we, mm. and I say we, you know, yeah. uh, we're imposing rules we, that we see as, yeah, see as signs of disorder. <laughs> and I think, you know, as speech pathologists, we're quite attuned to, oh, oh, is that a sign? And yes. we look for deficits and we're looking for problems. Um, but maybe we need to just reorient ourselves as speech pathologists when we're working with multilingual children. We actually need to look for signs of competence and signs of, mm. these are actually signs that the child has metalinguistic abilities far beyond a monolingual child who couldn't swap out a sentence yeah. or swap out a phrase. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things that I haven't I've been meaning to mention as we've been talking is that one of the things that I love about the Catalyze Consortium's flow chart is they do put that investigation into multilingualism at the very start of their investigative process, which yeah. I think is a really a great acknowledgement, but B really sensible, really sensible to actually ask one of the first things is, you know, do you speak more than one language? If so, how much of it do you use and in which settings and circumstances? And actually asking that is incredibly important in order to inform your, your assessment process. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, are there any other big myths that you wanted to share? They were the big two. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're the big yeah. two. They're that the big two around. that keep coming up in my um in my experience though. Interesting to hear from an anecdotal perspective what's what's cropping up as well. Mm. So is there any example or or is there, or can you think of a person with DLD that you've worked with who speaks multiple language and, and maybe how your practices need to adapt? We've kind of touched on it, but is there anything you wanted to elaborate on? Yeah, I think, um, and, you know, a lot of this stuff is informed or set up by uh, the policies of where you work and, and yes. you know, what, what your limitations are. But yeah. I think to be much more comfortable in the fact that I cannot or, and should not for a multilingual child do a one-off assessment and diagnosis. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And it's going to take more time. And mm-hmm. to be okay with that and to budget for that. Yes. And it is going to take different effort. And mm-hmm. that is okay to invest that time for the purposes of getting an accurate diagnosis. I've had that yeah. awkward moment where it's who's paying for the interpreter. You know what I mean? Yes. Or yeah. Yeah. Who's, who's booking all of that? And it's, it is an extra level of cognitive load, isn't it, in the assessment process? And yeah. then doing that, I, I've done, well, I don't know about others, but I've had to do that um, working with interpreter training in order mm. to then book, book that service in and work with the interpreter. And it does take more, but once you've kind of done it, you've done it once, it's that almost once you've done it, you can utilise those skills again. It's not like you have to yeah. redo it every time. No, 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 no. And once you're comfortable and more okay with the fact that that's how it works, then it just yeah. becomes part of your practice, I think. And I think also being more aware that we can do it the other way around as well. So we can, you know, we can assess and then treat, which is usually what we do. You know, we get referred to yeah. child, we assess them, we make a diagnosis, and then we do some stuff. Yeah. But maybe it's okay to do it another way around. So, look, mm. I'm not sure. Let's try some treatment and see how they go and then look yes. at the responsivity to treatment as an information source. Yes. So you know, that maybe we book them in for four sessions and we try some stuff, you know, we try some intervention and if things go really, really well and they're very responsive to it, then it's probably unlikely they have a language disorder. It's probably mm. that they haven't had exposure to this, you know, this concept or this grammatical structure before. 
yeah. yeah yeah so i guess doing an extended dynamic assessment rather than a you know within mm. session dynamic assessment mm. absolutely great i mean i can think of a lot of instances where that would have been really helpful with some oh, of the young absolutely. people yeah you know, i've learned a lot doing with, research <laughs> yeah not and i think that pressure we put ourselves under in order to have the answer i think yeah. is a big professional pressure isn't it to say well we have the answer whereas sometimes it might be best to say actually i don't have the answer but i'm yeah. going to do everything i can in order and to give you the best possible together answer. with the family to figure this out absolutely yeah no i think my assessment practices have probably changed so in your opinion what are you hoping to see in the future for dld in australia and around the world either in research or clinical work or in service delivery? Yeah, what I think is exciting to see at the moment is you're seeing DLD as a diagnostic term being used clinically. Mm. Um, I haven't had the same experience of SLI being used mm -hmm. that way. So I don't know that I ever received that many reports that made a diagnosis. Yes. You know, it talked about functional impact and, you know, certainly that was important. And reading between the lines, you could say, well, this child probably has an SLI. Yes. Um, but seeing a diagnostic report for child language development was pretty rare. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, all those positive things about, you know, having a label to look up on the internet is actually quite yes. helpful. Finding mm. other people in the same situation is mm -hmm. quite helpful. Um, so I'm pretty excited about that. Um, I'm also excited to the association, the International Association of Communication Sciences and Disorders. We are putting together a research project in the at the moment, um, an international one, asking speech pathologists about how they diagnose language disorder in multilingual children. Mm. So that's a big project that will take what well, is still being written and it will take yes. place probably, what are we in August, I think beginning of next year. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, the Catalyze project has been really good for monolingual. Uh, language users and now it's you know time to see what happens with the rest of the world like how we're diagnosing DLD for children who have diverse language experience as well which as you said is a large portion of people it is you know most of the world <laughs> yes yes yeah, yeah, absolutely is there anything else regarding the um multilingual uh it's the I I can't remember the acronym I -L -L -P, now, yeah I, I know that there's information there for speech pathologists. Is there anything in their resources that are targeted at parents or other forms of professionals that we might be able to share? Yeah, so there's two handouts that are probably most appropriate. And one is frequently asked questions by speech pathologists. And yes. all of the answers have references. So you can go and look further to find out, you know, where that answer came from. Um, but yeah. there's also one for um, parents about, you know, I want to Fantastic. raise my child bilingually. When should I start speaking this other, you know, a second language? Um, this is happening. Is this typical? Those kinds of questions. So there's um, parent resources there as well as uh, resources for speech pathologists. Fantastic. I, I'll definitely make sure that after um, we've finished recording, I'll make sure that those are saved and ready to be uploaded because I think really? that's going to be one of the big benefits of, of doing these sorts of things like the Talking DLD podcast is also then saying, well, we can't answer every question for every person in a, um, you know, 45 minute or one hour chat. But there is lots of information out there for either whether you're the family or the educator or the therapist that's that's working in this space. So I think people seem to always be hungry for more. Yeah, and I know <laughs> and I was, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, there's, and there's plenty more out there, isn't there? So yeah. that's great. So we'll make sure we link both of those. As we're sort of drawing to a close now, I'll ask one more question before I start wrapping up. Is there anything else regarding working with multilingual children with DLD that we haven't covered or that you feel is really important? 
I think as a speech pathologist working with multilingual children, probably we need to be more aware of a sociocultural assessment to language. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we tend to do very um, decontextualised language assessments. Um, which don't necessarily translate to functional um, language use. And I think for multilingual children, we actually need to be much more explicit about finding out how children are using language and what their language competence is in different situations with different language partners. So the functional impact will be you know, a little bit more complex than it is with monolingual children, but that information is actually really worth finding out because mm. through that you actually find out whether the child is actually, you know, has communicative competence for the purposes that they're using language. So are they able to communicate with their teacher? Are they able to communicate with their um, playgroup leader? Are they able to com communicate with their grandparents? All of those interactions. Yeah. 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 So really, yeah. The, you know, not just relying on a number because we know that the tests don't do very well for multilingual children. Yes. They're not designed for use with multilingual children. So being okay with the fact that we might not have a number to hang your hat on but mm. actually we need to look at experience and yeah. functional communication so my last question is as, we, as we're drawing to a close at the dld project we're really focused uh, particularly at the moment but in general on self-care and finding that time to breathe as uh, you know outstanding researcher and definitely a thought leader in dld particularly in this um, assessment with uh, multilingual children space what do you do to look after yourself? Uh, like most people, probably not enough. Um, <laughs> that uh, is though, the general response yeah, like everybody like, so far. Um, uh, yeah. Those who do know me, and you can probably tell, I do love a chat. I yes. do, and I'm a speech pathologist. I like talking. Yes. Um, and I often find that I'm not really sure about what I think about things until I've had a chance to talk it out. Mm -hmm. So making time to talk with people you know, yeah. friends as well as, you know, mentors and supervisors and, you know, other clever people about what my plans are and my research and my ideas really helps me narrow it down and figure out what I actually think. And I'm eternally grateful to all of those people who make themselves <laughs> available. Um, and I try to reciprocate to be on the listening side of their, of their conversations as well. Yeah. And I, um, I'm, I'm nodding, if, you know, as in a podcast, you can't see the, the visuals here, but I, I'm nodding because uh, I know you haven't met my colleague, Nat, but the reason why I love working with Nat is that I like to talk things out. I often um, will, you know, throw things out there and see what sticks, you know, yeah. and then all of a sudden it's going, okay, now we're going down this train of thought. I'm going to come back to this thought, but, you know, we're going yeah. down here and we're having this discussion because if I did it all in my own head, I don't think it would be quite as effective as saying it out loud. So, yeah. and I find in my own head, I just go round and round in circles, which is not productive. But when it comes out, then I, you know, I don't know what it is. You hear it in a different way, or you go, "Well, that doesn't make sense." Or, you and know, you can kind oh, of, oh, hadn't thought about that option. And yeah, yeah. So very grateful to um, you know family, friends, and colleagues who listen to my ideas. Mm. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining the Talking DLD podcast. And I'm really excited to be able to share with our audience, which is primarily families, educators and therapists around working with multilingual children, particularly from that assessment process. I think some of the things that I've learned from today are definitely um, that remembering to take the time. Um, that's something that in a clinical sense, I often feel that pressure to um, move and move quickly and, and ensure that I'm doing the best that I can. But sometimes the best that I can do is actually 
by taking that time. Yeah, and efficiency, you know, you think about trying to be efficient the whole time, but one of the tenets of efficiency is actually accuracy. So mm. things will take longer, but it'll be better. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think the calibre and quality of what we can then deliver by keeping this all in mind um, will mean that we're doing that much better work for multilingual children with DLD. And I can honestly say I'm looking forward to seeing where your PhD takes you, um, particularly looking at a longitudinal study. I mean, my hat is taken off to you in many ways, um, but making, you know, seeing what those, how those findings will then be able to support clinical practice, better diagnosis, diagnostic processes, and ensuring that ultimately our kids get the best possible support they can. Great. Thank you so much for having me. How interesting was that? Wow. For parents in multilingual homes, we hope that this podcast has given you some peace of mind when raising your child to have two or more languages at home. It can be beneficial. Who knew? And for our speech pathologist friends, some food for thought perhaps uh, on how best to work with multilingual kids moving forward. Emily did mention a number of resources which we have for you in our blog at thedldproject.com. So check those out. We've got links to all the different papers uh, she mentioned. And uh, please feel free to share this podcast really widely with all your networks because, uh, you know, together we can create a world where people with DLD are recognised, understood and empowered to live their best life. <laughs>